But Lord, thank you. We praise you, Lord, because you are uh, powerful. You are mighty. Your name is beautiful. Lord, I, I just want to ask that in this time now, oh, Lord, glorify yourself through your word, through me, in, in all of us as we hear these words, whether we're here in person or some maybe joining online, I pray, Lord, glorify yourself. Lord, may we see you, may we know you today in a fresh way, in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, man, so good. And I uh, just want to say thank you to, you know, we've got this, there's a, there's a, there's a room up there in the top corner. We've got some volunteers who are, are hard at work in there, and I'm so thankful for them. They do such a great job week after week, just giving their, their time and their abilities to make sure that we can hear what's going on and see what's going on and, and running cameras around and all over the place. So thank you guys. If we just give them a quick hand. See, they don't, they, those guys don't actually want that. That's why they stay in the room. They don't actually want anyone to notice them, but too bad. It's happened. Uh, so, you know, as, as we're going through this, this section in the book of Acts, one of the things that just keeps on hitting me, as we go to all of these different cities in the ancient Greco-Roman kind of world, is how unlikely a lot of these places were as, as places where the gospel, the good news that a Jewish man had been crucified and resurrected, was declared to be son of God, and that salvation was found through trusting in him. How unlikely these cities were as places where that message would take root. Because a lot of these cities, they were, they were wealthy, they were educated, they were sophisticated places. They were places that were, they were, they were spiritual places. There was widespread devotion to other gods, including to the Roman Empire itself. And yet these are places where the church grew and the gospel expanded. And I, I just, I think that gives us hope for our day as well. Because Greater Vancouver seems like a hard place to me oftentimes. A place that seems unlikely, a wealthy, educated, sophisticated, spiritual, but not religious kind of city. And, and there's a difference, of course, because in Paul's day, the good news was actually news. People hadn't heard it before, so it was fresh. Whereas today, a lot of people, the struggle is that a lot of people think that they know what the gospel is. They think they know what Christian faith is, and they've kind of dismissed it on the basis of that. And I think that as our culture moves further and further away from any semblance of Christian faith, as, as our world gets darker, the light is going to become brighter and people are going to be able to hear the good news again as news in a, in a fresh way. But in any case, the fact that the gospel transformed lives back then in cities like those means that the gospel can transform lives today in cities like ours. And that, that gives me hope. And I, I think about that again as we come to the city we're in this week, which is Ephesus. And, and Nate talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, but just to give you a little background of this, this city of Ephesus, and then we'll get into the text. Ephesus was a major, major city. It was either the third or fourth biggest city in the Roman Empire at the time, just behind Rome and Alexandria in, in Egypt. After that was, was Ephesus. Major city. Uh, prominent in the city was the temple to the goddess Artemis. This was actually one of the seven ancient, uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, it was four times bigger than the Parthenon in Athens. So you, you kind of know about Athens, you know about the, the, the temples there. Ephesus, far, far larger, far more significant. 
Uh, Ephesus was on a seaport on the west end of what is modern-day Turkey. So very central city commercially, lots, lots of money coming through there. Also was a, was a city that already 80 years before Paul was kind of designated as a center for the Roman imperial cult. So people worshiping the Roman Empire, worshiping past Roman emperors as divine. That kind of thing was, was happening in Ephesus. So it was, a, a, in terms of commercial, political, religious kind of uh, realms, this was a central city. And yet, in the first century, this city also became perhaps the center for Christian faith. The church here became perhaps the leading church in the first century. Paul spent two and a half years here, as we'll see in the text. It's quite a long time for Paul. After he left, he entrusted leadership of the church to Timothy, his young protege. Uh, And then years later, according to church tradition, John, the disciple John, ends up becoming the the leader of, of this church. And according to that same tradition, Mary, the mother of Jesus, ends up settling in Ephesus as well. Um, one author talks about how incredible it would be to spend Christmas in Ephesus with Mary there, right, in the congregation. But you just think about that succession of leaders from from Paul to to Timothy to John with with Mary in the mix as well. Like this church had just an incredible kind of status. Jesus in Revelation 2, he he writes, he speaks uh, messages to a bunch of those churches in the province of Asia, the Roman province of Asia. And he starts out by speaking to the church in Ephesus. And he says, that the church in Ephesus needs to regain the fire that they once had, that zeal and passion they once had, but that the church in Ephesus continues to be a discerning church, a church that is, is faithful and zealous and upright and so on. Again, this church was one of the leading churches in the first century world. How did that happen? How did that come about? That's what we're gonna look at today. So if you've got your Bibles, we're in Acts 19, and we're going to go from, from verses 1 to 20. While, Paul was at, was, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. 
One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is a great passage. Can't you wait until we talk about that one story? I mean, man, what's going on there? Let's start it with this, though. Paul comes to Ephesus and he stays a while. You know how some people, they, they come into your home and they never take off their jacket and you're like, they're just looking for an exit. They're looking for, they're not here for very long. Paul was like that in most cities. Don't bother unpacking, you're only here for a short bit. But in Ephesus, he takes off his jacket, he stays a while. And this is significant because on two other occasions, Paul wanted to go to Ephesus, but for various reasons wasn't able to or wasn't able to stay there. So way back in January, with the way we started this whole sermon series, Paul and Silas want to bring the, the good news to new areas. And they've got their, their sights set on the province of Asia. And Ephesus is the big city. That's, that's the major city there. So they want to go to Ephesus. And do you remember this? The Holy Spirit prevents them from going to Ephesus. They've got their sights set on Asia. And the Holy Spirit says, no, I don't want you to go there. Now, a couple years pass, and, and Paul is in Greece, modern-day Greece. He's planting churches, preaching the good news there. On his way back, he comes to Ephesus. Finally, he makes it. He goes to the synagogue. He starts, this is what uh, Nate talked about last week a little bit. He's there. He's, he's preaching. Uh, and the people there in the synagogue say, stick around a little bit. We want to hear more. And Paul has to say to them, I, I can't. I have to keep going. If it's God's will, then, then I'll come back. So on two occasions, Paul has been prevented from really settling down and, and preaching the good news in Ephesus. And, and so you've got now, in Acts 19, four years or so have passed, two attempts, and finally he's able to be here. Now here's the thought that occurs to me when, when I read that. Was Paul's desire to go to Ephesus those other, those other occasions, was that a good desire? Of course it was. Was it God's desire? Was it, was it even something that would honor the Lord for him to go to Ephesus and preach the good news? Yes, I believe it was. And yet on two occasions, God essentially said, not yet. Does that not speak to some of us who have longings and desires that are good, that are even from the Lord, and yet for whatever reason, they're not finding their fulfillment and we can get frustrated with this, can't we? We could come to God and we could say, God, like, what are you waiting for? Why aren't you doing this thing? It's a, it's a good thing. I believe it's from you. Why aren't you doing it yet? We might say to him, God, I, I crunched all the numbers. You know, I ran it through my model, my simulation. There's, no, there's nothing to lose here. It's all good. What are you waiting for? And yet God might still say, not yet. Maybe. One, one possibility is because you're actually not ready yet. 
because God's got more work to do in you to prepare you, to shape you, and form you so that you can be the kind of person who is actually able to live out that longing, that desire, that kingdom desire that you have. He's saying not yet because he's got more preparation to do in you. And I wonder if that was actually what was happening for Paul in those, in those years in between the, the dream, the desire, and the fulfillment. In the meantime, I think God was doing a work preparing him. See, Ephesus ends up being, you could say, the climax of Paul's ministry. It's the last church in the book of Acts that we read of him planting. So this is, this is kind of the last one. He seems to have a, a kind of an anointing and to a degree that maybe is unparalleled earlier on, and as, as we already talked about, his ministry here has a bigger impact, maybe than anywhere else, where the word spreads widely, this becomes one of the leading churches, right? So the, this, the impact he has here is huge. And, and I think what you see in the previous chapters of Acts is how God is preparing him for ministry in Ephesus. Think about Thessalonica, where Paul... Paul is exposed to the idolatrous pull of the Roman Empire. You think about Corinth, where Paul experiences being overwhelmed and overmatched and needing to rely on God's power for renewal. Think about Philippi, where Paul is confronted with demonic forces. Or you think about Athens, where you have this clash of worldviews. All of those things, all of those lessons kind of coalesce in Ephesus. All of that comes together. You see, you see what I mean? That, that there's, there's this, this preparation that God is doing in Paul. And I, I think that's, that's, a, that's an encouragement for us as well. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart if you've got a good desire, but it hasn't reached its fulfillment yet. God's at work in you. We're impatient. We want what we want, and we want it right now. But we live in this instant gratification society, and, and God is not like that. He's He's patient. He plays the long game. He's got the big picture in view. And so he's at work in us in the meantime, in that space, in between dream and fulfillment, preparing us, forming us, shaping us for a ministry that we wouldn't be ready for otherwise. And what we see in the rest of this text is, is really how God has used all of this preparation, all of this time to kind of get Paul ready for ministry in Ephesus, both in his ministry of the word and his teaching, as well as, as in his ministry of works and some of the miracles that happen here. So let's talk about, let's talk about the word. Let's talk about his, his teaching ministry. I won't uh, spend a lot of time on the first seven verses, but um, Paul meets these 12 guys who know a little bit about Jesus. They don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Uh, they've been baptized with John the Baptist's baptism. It's a mouthful. <laughs> John the Baptist, his baptism and his ministry was all about preparing people for Jesus, getting people ready for Jesus. So these guys, they're not closed to the good news at all. They just, they're just behind the times. I, I have this, I, I never did this, but I remember friends, siblings who uh, ordered CDs off of like Columbia Record Company. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You get like the mail order CDs coming in. It's like guys doing that in 2023 because they haven't heard of Spotify, right? That's basically what's happening with these guys. They're just, they're just behind the times. They're not opposed. They just don't know. And so when, when Paul tells them, hey, actually the Messiah has come. 
Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that you've been waiting for. They, they receive that. They believe it. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues, which is what happens to the disciples in Acts 2. That doesn't mean, by the way, that if you have the Holy Spirit, you will speak in tongues. Uh, we see that very clearly from Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians, other parts of Acts. These two things don't always go hand in hand. It also doesn't mean, as some people think it means, that the Holy Spirit's filling is like a second blessing further down the road. Because in other points of Acts, you see the Holy Spirit coming before baptism, after, during. There's not like a, a pattern all the way throughout. The point is that these 12 guys, they, they trust in Jesus and they become fully incorporated into the people of God. They are, they are all in. They form the nucleus of this, of this church in Ephesus. So, so Paul is teaching and training them. He is also teaching and persuading people who aren't yet believers. So he goes to the synagogue. That's where he always goes first. And he preaches there for three whole months. That's way longer than Paul usually gets. Usually gets two weeks. The first week, they're like, that's interesting. Tell us more. Second week, they say, you need to die now. That's usually, that's usually Paul's pattern. But here, he ends up staying quite a while, maybe because he had been there previously, he'd whetted their appetites a little bit. Um, so he gets three months, but eventually the leaders of the synagogue realize that what this guy's talking about does not work with the status quo. And so they, they kind of, they, they, they say, you got, you got to get out of here. We're going to kill you soon. So Paul leaves, and he goes, uh, he goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This would have been... Uh, like something like a, like a public teaching center, philosophical learning. And Paul gets some space there. And for two years, he ends up having discussions, answering questions, um, teaching about, about Jesus there. He finds a place that is accessible to, to outsiders and a place where he's free to say what he needs to say. I actually think there's, a, there's something of a paradigm there. There's a lesson for churches Especially churches that have space, that have church buildings, for example. You know, some, um, some church buildings become like, like temples. They're, they're closed to outsiders, and they're shrouded in mystery. They're very intimidating places to go. There are other churches that, that use their church buildings like, just like community centers. Like anybody can rent the space to do whatever they want. There's not necessarily any connection with, with Jesus, and I really like how we've approached using this building, which isn't surprising if I'm the pastor. I, I should like how we've, how we've used this. But, but I, I see that what we're doing is, is exactly that. We're trying to create space for people from our community, from people who aren't yet followers of Jesus to come in, to hear gospel teaching, to be able to ask questions, to have discussions. Uh, our Tuesday night basketball, you know, we do a little devotional and a prayer, and we're trying to have these conversations. Salem, Supper Club, the, the, the Easter fair that we're doing in a couple of weeks, that's exactly what that's all about. Alpha is huge in this. If you don't know what Alpha is, uh, Alpha is, it's a free meal, and it's, it's watching a, a video with some teaching about Christian faith, and it's a discussion about that. We're going to be running that starting April 20th. That's exactly what this is. Create space for people to come in, ask questions, have discussion. That's what Paul was doing in Acts 19. That's what we want to be about as well. Now, the impact of Paul's teaching is incredible. We read that 
all the Jews and Gentiles living in the whole province of Asia hear the good news about Jesus. Now that's probably not because every single person makes a pilgrimage to the lecture hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus during those two years. It's almost certainly because Paul is raising people up. He's, he's teaching and training other people to go out and to share this good news as well. An example would be in Colossae. So Colossae is another main city in the province of Asia. It's about 200 kilometers east. You see that there, the black circle. I did that. I figured out how to do that. A keynote, I made that black circle, circled around Colossae right there. 200 kilometers east of Ephesus. As far as we know, Paul never went to that city. Never, didn't plant the church there. And yet, Paul has a relationship with the church in Colossae. The, the, the person who actually did plant the church is a guy named Epaphras. And Paul says in Colossians 1, he writes to the Colossians, and he talks about Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. A lot of people think that Epaphras heard the good news in Ephesus during Paul's teaching ministry there and then took the gospel to Colossae, to his hometown, and kind of shared it there as well. And that seems to me a pattern of the kind of thing that was happening. Where Paul's ministry, it was a, it was a multiplying ministry. It wasn't just that people came and listened to him. It's, it's that he was, he was going out and, and, and he, was, he was teaching and training and equipping other people as well. I think this too has major implications for the church. Because some people think about this, about church. They think that church is just showing up to a, a religious service once in a while, listening to some guy flap his gums for 40 minutes or so, and then you go off and, and kind of live life the way you've always lived, right? But you've kind of checked something off your spiritual to-do list. I want to barf in my mouth when, when I hear that. That's not what church is. You know, Paul writes in Ephesians, he says that Christ has given the church leaders, like pastors and teachers and evangelists and prophets and apostles. He's given the church leaders to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. See, that, that's what I'm called to do. That, that's what Jaylene and, and Nate and Tati and, and others are called to do. That's what our elders are called to do, to equip you. See, if, if, if all this is, is a bunch of people showing up to hear me talk a little bit, what's the point? If my ministry isn't equipping you to go out and to build up the body of Christ and make Jesus known, then what am I doing? Like this has to be about the whole body of Christ being mobilized, equipped, empowered. You have a ministry. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a ministry. You have gifts. You need to use those. You need to serve the Lord. You need to build up the church. If you have been a follower of Jesus for any period of time, and you're not involved in discipling and building others up. Something has gone wrong. Your growth has gotten stunted or stalled out at some point. It doesn't mean that you're constantly meeting people one-on-one -on -one and, and you know, having these formal discipleship kind of relationships. But in, it, it could be that, and that's great. But in one way or another, you are building others up, teaching others, helping others see who Jesus is and to follow him more closely. That, that's the calling.
I think that's what we see in Paul. I think that's, that's a kind of maturing ministry is that he is, he is growing in that equipping. He is, he is growing in the way that the ministry is multiplying and it has this tremendous impact where so many people are trusting in the Lord. So God's used that preparation from all of those experiences beforehand in terms of his teaching. He's also done it through the ministry of, of his works. Even Luke is kind of surprised by what God does through Paul, right? He says that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. I don't know about you, but I feel like miracles are kind of extraordinary in the first place, right? Like, it's pretty special, but Luke says they were especially special. They were strangely strange. They were extraordinarily extraordinary, these miracles. And no kidding, because Sweat rags that had touched Paul with his sweat. That's probably what the aprons and handkerchiefs were, by the way. It was like his sweat rags that he would have used while doing his tent-making work, according to those, those Greek words and the vocabulary there. So these sweat rags, they've got his sweat on them, and people are like, can I touch Paul's sweat, please? Like that's what the, and, and, and they're getting healed from that. That's crazy. It's kind of gross, Right? Like, like, for some people, hygiene is a really big deal. You don't really want to go there. I read a story a couple weeks ago about this um, wealthy tech entrepreneur who was on an airplane, and uh, the woman sitting next to him worked for a pharmaceutical company, and she was wearing a mask. And they got into this whole, he's not a mask guy, and they got into this whole, like, debate and discussion, and he offered her $100,000 if she would take off her mask for the rest of the flight. And she didn't do it! I mean, she's got strong convictions, obviously, but, uh, but I, I, I'm going to wear a mask on my next flight just to see, you know, I want to <laughs> see if I can make this work, you know? Uh, $100,000, it's incredible. These guys are not bothered at all by hygiene. That's not going to stop them. You know, I think about, um, it's kind of similar to that woman who touches the edge of Jesus' garment, and is healed. Or even in Acts 5 where um, Peter just walks along and his shadow, if it touches the sick, apparently they're getting healed. It's like this whole other level of, of anointing for healing that's going on here. How did, how did that happen for Paul? How did he get to that place where his sweat is somehow healing people? I think the next story actually does give us some insight on this. And you need to know some things about Ephesus so that this story makes a little bit more sense. Ephesus, in addition to being the center for all of those other things we talked about, Ephesus was also the center in the ancient world for, for magic. And we're not talking about like, like my kids got this like magic set, you know, they have all these magic tricks that my mom figured out in 10 seconds yesterday. Not talking about that kind of magic. We're, t we're talking about People believing that certain formulas, certain, certain names especially of supernatural beings, gods, deities, that kind of thing, that if you say those names correctly and with certain other words that you can cast curses on your enemies, bring blessings on yourself, you can kind of manipulate the supernatural to your own ends. That's kind of like the magic we're talking about. Ephesus was the center for this. There's a collection, even ancient collection of magical formulas. It's called the Ephesian scripts because of how closely Ephesus was connected to this. And the Jews in Ephesus as well had kind of developed their own brand of 
magic. They had, they'd put their Jewish faith together with, with, with these magical, kind of this magical worldview and had kind of gained some notoriety because of this. So all of that is in the background here where you get, you get these seven Jewish men who are sons of a, a supposedly chief priest named Siva. And they hear or see Paul using the name of Jesus to drive out demons. And all of a sudden, they've got, they've got bells ringing. They're like, oh, this is, this, is a new, this is a new venture for us. This could gain some more money, some more notoriety. The, this name of this guy named Jesus is an especially powerful name. They've seen what, what Paul can do. They think, if we do that, we could really bump up our status. Now, it's clear they don't know Jesus They don't believe in Jesus. They don't have any relationship with Jesus. The name of Jesus is simply a means to an end for them. That's all it is. It's a means to an end. I don't have to tell you that this kind of thing happens today too, right? I mean, think about megachurch televangelist preachers who use the name of Jesus to get other people, to give them money so they can get private jets for them. They gotta, get, they gotta have a private jet, guys. You can't do ministry. You can't do ministry without a private jet, right? So come on, give me, give me money. I'm serious, give me money. I need a private jet. I really need this. Uh, I can't fly around North Vancouver without one. Uh, but they, they, they use the name of Jesus just to enrich themselves. I was, we, we got a cheap radio subscri- or cheap subscription to uh, Sirius Satellite Radio recently and we turned to this one station that's this very well-known televangelist in the States, megachurch pastor. And sure enough, within two minutes, he's telling people, look, if you put your trust in God, he's going to give you a long life. You're not going to be poor anymore. You're going to die really rich and wealthy. And it's like, so is, is, is Jesus the point or is the riches and the health the point? And Jesus is just a means to that end. You know what I mean? And we, and we do this, we do this in subtle ways too. I, I mean, some of us know that we need help. We need, we need strength in our lives from God. And so we kind of think, well, if I'm going to get God's intervention, then there are certain things I need to do. I need to make sure I'm going to church and, and giving a bit of my money and all of this. And if I do those things, then God has to keep up his end of the deal and provide stuff for me, right? And if he doesn't, like, God, if you don't give me that job promotion, maybe I'm not going to grace you with 90 minutes of my semi-attention once a month or so. You know, that's the deal, Lord. We kind of treat God that way, like a vending machine. I do this, you do the thing that I want for, for myself. But um, that's, that's the thing with miracles versus magic. Ma- magic is basically an attempt to manipulate the supernatural to accomplish my purposes. A miracle is an unmerited, unearned, sovereign act of God. A miracle is a blessing. Magic, that manipulation, that's, that's disastrous. And it's, it's disastrous for these guys, these seven sons of Siva, right? Because they, they think if we just do this, Say the words that Paul said, boom goes the dynamite, <laughs> demons flee, this, this is going to work for sure. And so they confront this demon-possessed guy and say the words, and then I think what happens next must have just been the most terrifying thing, ter- terrifying thing in the world, right? Like, like they're expecting that the demon's going to flee because they saw it happen with Paul, but instead this guy goes, I know who Jesus is, I know who Paul is but I don't know who you are. 
and he turns into this like UFC like megastar, beats all seven guys. One guy gets seven, beats them to a pulp, and just for good measure, strips off their clothing, leaving them completely humiliated. I mean, this is, this is, this is crazy, right? Like, and, 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 and again, I just think, like, this is, this is what happens when you try to manipulate God. Things don't go well. See, there's something here that comes across really clearly to me. The, the spiritual authority that Paul had, both in his teaching, but also in, his, in, in the ministry of, 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 of the works, the spiritual authority he had was not because he had learned some magical formula, it's not because he had gained some techniques, developed an unbeatable strategy for driving out demons and curing illnesses. It's not, not because Paul had any strength or ability on his own. The spiritual authority that Paul had was rooted in relationship. It was, it was a byproduct of intimacy, of an intimate relationship with Christ. You know, and, and, and that, that, that depth of relationship grew every time Paul experienced a cross-like rejection, every time Paul endured a cross-like persecution, every time Paul had to die to himself in a new way in order to experience the renewal of Jesus Christ, Every time that happened, his relationship with Jesus was deepened. It was strengthened. And so the authority that Paul ministered with was the authority of Jesus working through him. See, um, the same words that these men spoke, if, if Paul had spoken those words, the demons would have fled. But, but when they came from somebody who had none of that, connection with Jesus. They, they didn't do a thing. The demons didn't even flinch. There's a book that a guy named Rob Reimer wrote recently called Spiritual Authority. A few of our staff have read it. And he makes this point over and over again. He says that earlier on in his life as a pastor, he wanted, he knew that he wanted, he needed power from, from the Lord. That there were things he wanted to see that he couldn't do on his own. But he realized that he was seeking God just to get that stuff. He was seeking God's hands and that what he needed to do was seek God's face. Love the Lord, to seek the Lord simply for who he is and then that, that authority would be a byproduct of that, not the goal, but the, but the byproduct. And so, and so he says that, that um, we can only operate in authority to the degree that we are in submission to the king, the more we are submitted to Jesus, to his work in our lives, the more this authority comes. And he says, actually, what you see in the scriptures is that prayer, fasting, testing, and temptation are essential for deepening intimacy. And expanding intimacy is necessary for developing authority. This is what you see in the desert, in the wilderness, when Jesus is, is there for 40 days. He's fasting. He's being tempted. He does this, and then right from there, he launches into his public ministry because all of this is increasing the authority that the incarnate Son of God has in his ministry. The, these things, this is why I keep on saying that in Ephesus, you see the culmination of this. All of those tests, all of those trials, all of that rejection, all of those ways that Paul was tested and stressed 
touched and brought to the breaking point had prepared him, had developed in him this authority that he now exercises in Ephesus. See, if, if Paul hadn't experienced all that, I don't know if any of this would have happened. Now, the result of this encounter. Look at the result of this. People hear what has happened, and they realize that the name of Jesus is not something to be trifled with. Jesus is not a tool in your toolbox. Jesus is holy. His name is holy. And so you get all these people in Ephesus who seem to have had some kind of connection with the church, who had maybe had some belief in Jesus, but they had held on to their magical practices. They had held on to some of those old things we just sang in that beautiful song about laying down our, our, our old flames to take up his fire, right? This is the reality. A lot of us, we hold on to the old stuff. We go, okay, yes, Jesus, I'll have you, but I can't let go of these other things. That was what was going on in Ephesus. People had Jesus, but they also were holding on to all this other stuff. And they realize through hearing this encounter, that doesn't work. They've got to be all in. They've got to be fully devoted to Jesus. So they hold a book burning party, which obviously book burning has a kind of a negative connotation for us because we think about government-led attempts to kind of censor things and to get everybody to give the material to them so they can burn it. That's not what's going on here, right? Paul's not going door to door forcing people to give them their, magic, give them their magical text. It's, it's bottom up. It's people going, I don't want this stuff anymore. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I want to be rid of it so I can be all in on Jesus. And uh, Luke makes a, an interesting mention here. He, uh, I guess somebody was keeping track as everybody was throwing their, their scrolls into the fire. He's going, oh, that was 50 drachmas, that was 100 drachmas or whatever. He says in the end it was 50,000 drachmas. Now drachma was an average day's wage in, in the ancient world. So modern equivalent, if you take the minimum wage in BC, so this would be like low, absolute low end, low estimate, but if you took the minimum wage of BC and you multiplied that by eight hours in a day and you multiply that by 50,000, I did this on a calculator, you end up with something just over six million dollars. That, that would be like absolute low end. Six million dollars worth of books, of magical formulas. Six million dollars! And see, it's not enough for these people to just stop using those scrolls. It's not enough for them to even like sell them off so that, you know, they wouldn't have them anymore, but at least they'd make a little bit of money, you know? No, they, they actually just want to get rid of it altogether. They burn the scrolls. They, they, don't even, they don't even care anymore about financial profit. They just want to be done with it. This is what we see in Paul's ministry in Ephesus is, is this, this maturing ministry where people are being trained up and discipled, where people are being healed and set free from evil, where people would gladly give up $6 million in order to pursue holiness and a deeper relationship with Jesus. We see a church that has, is, is going to become one of the shining lights in the Roman world. And again, I don't think any of that happens if Paul had gotten his wish and had gone to Ephesus four years before. 
God knew what he was doing when he said, no, not yet. And I just, I just keep coming back to this, and I'm going to conclude with this as well. That the life of following Jesus is not um, a say your prayer, go to church once in a while and call it a day kind of thing. It is a life of continual growth. It, it's a life of continual maturing uh, that the Holy Spirit is doing in someone. And Paul says in, in that passage in Ephesians where he says that Christ gave the church all of these leaders to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And then he continues, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Maturity. The whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That, that's, that's what we're aiming for. Do you see why it's so anemic, so, so weak, that vision we have of Christian faith, that it's like just say the sinner's prayer, show up at church once in a while, and you're done. The whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's what we're going after. You know, and, and, and if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here with us, here in person or online, I just want to say what I always say. I'm so, so, so glad that you're here. I pray that you're hearing things that speak to you, uh, that the Lord is, is, is kind of opening up new, new visions of who he is. I want to say this, though, that you might think that being a Christian sounds boring, yeah, that it sounds like all of that stuff that makes life fun and exciting Get stripped away. I got to burn my magical texts. I tell you, it's the opposite. That a life of following Jesus is, is a life of ever-deepening relationship with the one who made all things, who made you, who loves you so much that he gave his life for you. And Jesus didn't die for you, and he didn't rise again just to give you a ticket to heaven after you die. He did it to make you a new creation, now and forever. He did it so that you could be renovated, renewed, remade into the person he made you to be all along. It's, it's a life where all of those trials and testings and frustrations and disappointments and delays are all, all used in preparation for being a blessing in the world. That that maturity that he works in you would ripple out to the world. It's, it's a life it's a, it's a life in which there is a clear trajectory and goal in life. There, there's a purpose there. This is the life that is truly worth living. See, see a lot of us, we, we shy away from the trials and the testing and the, and the difficulties and the delays. We, we don't want to go into that, you know? We want to stay safe and comfortable. But that's when you get boring, that's when you become stagnant. That's when you stop growing. There's this term, trust the process. It's a term that came into the common vocabulary of basketball fans about 10 years ago. Because there's this team, the Philadelphia 76ers, who I cannot stand. All their players are profoundly unlikable. But they, um, they, the, the GM of the team embarked on a, on a daring venture about 10 years ago said, we're going to make this team as bad as it possibly can be so that we can stockpile high draft picks and eventually become a championship team. 
And so they just intentionally got really bad and, and just lost a ton of games. And through some of the worst seasons in NBA history, this became the mantra, trust the process. Trust the process. There's something at the end. We got to go through this pain to get to it. And to my delight, they still haven't won a championship. But I have to admit that they, they are a great team now. They're, they're a perennial every year. They're a championship contender now. They trusted the process, and the process is, is paying off. See, to be a follower of Jesus is to be growing, is, is to be continually prepared for greater degrees of ministry where the Lord is entrusting you with smaller responsibilities to get you ready for big ones. It means you have to trust the process. It means you have to be willing to experience those delays and disappointments and discouragements because it is shaping you and forming you. Paul writes to the, uh, the Philippians, he talks about how he's confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's begun a good work in so many of you. Don't stop. Don't get stagnant. Don't get comfortable. Let him use the testing and the trials and the difficulties and the delays. Let him continue to grow you. Trust his timing. Trust his work. This is his intention in you to bring that good work he has begun to completion on the day that Christ Jesus comes again. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.